This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer squad. And with the Queen's funeral today, we mark the end of the 10-day mourning period that had much of the world focused on the pageantry and ceremony and ritual of the British crown. And now there will be some reassessment undoubtedly. And I wonder, does the Zoomer generation have a special affinity for the institution, given that Queen Elizabeth was ever present since the middle of the 20th century, when we came of age? And this weekend, we suffered a big loss in our Zoomer family. Gail Goldman, who was a dear friend and colleague who many of us knew so well, passed away at the age of 75. She was involved in our operations, and she also worked for CARP. And let's begin there. I'm joined by Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, and John Wright, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP. Welcome, everyone. Hello, Hello Libby. Everybody. Hi, everyone. David, let's begin with you, your uh, memories of working with Gail. They were all wonderful. She was vital, dynamic, engaged, um, always upbeat. Uh, she had a very uh, interesting sense of humor because she took fielded a lot of phone calls from CARP members and was always able to solve their problems. But she would report back on some of these conversations with a little bit of uh, humor and irony and understanding kind of of human nature. So she was she was just great to work with, a real force. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, customer service issues, uh, they're not necessarily not easy. very easy to no. deal with because by the time people call, uh, they can be pretty annoyed. Absolutely. But she was humorous about it and uh, very uh, committed to uh, to delivering the best. Well, I knew Gail since I was a kid because she first encountered Moses back in 1969 after he left the CBC. He went to uh, try to rescue a failing sound studio called Thunder Sound, and she worked there. And uh, she was feisty. Yeah. She was yeah. feisty. She oh, yeah. wasn't uh, taking much guff from him. And she went on to become his first assistant at City TV, which he started, oh, gee, uh, the 50th anniversary is coming up in a hurry. And uh, she was there for years. And again, you know, in these jobs that required uh, a great deal of tact and diplomacy and discretion, but also a certain feistiness and, sure, you know, Gail... Sure always spoke her mind, and I really like that about yeah, her. Absolutely. Yeah, she'll be missed. Uh, Peter? And, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I knew Gail at the end of her career, and, and I, I remember she, when she, when Moses asked her to come back, she said, well, it, it began with Moses and it'll end with Moses. So she, she kind of knew that this would be her last job, and she basically died her desk, right? Like, she, she just kept working and working and working, and uh, always kept her sense of humor despite her health problems. She was, uh, you know, she had that kind of funny Eastern outlook on life. I think she's from Nova Scotia. And she, I think she, she's uh, from New Brunswick. Was New it Nova Brunswick. Scotia or New Brunswick? Brunswick. Yeah. And, the, and she, she kind of, uh, she kept things loose. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed her. And, 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 and uh, we'll miss her. Uh-huh. You know, she had a lot of challenges in her life. She married the love of her life, Cliff Goldman. Uh, she, her, her original name, she was Gail Hansen. And um, he died with ALS, and she nursed him through that. Yeah. And that yeah. was, 
She did that also with with grace, and there were uh, you know a lot of people um, around her who really admired the way she handled things. Uh, her own health was difficult. I mean, she she lived yeah, she, with heart failure right. for you know years. Yeah. yeah, and and she never complained. You wouldn't know it, right? Like she just she was there, there was sort of that old old school you know stiff upper lip about her, and uh, you know I, I I'll miss her dearly. I, I, we already miss her. And, sure. um, uh, though I also have to say, you know, she, she went out on her own terms. She absolutely did. She did. She did. Uh, yeah. she left instructions and those <laughs> instructions were followed. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that the doctors and, and, uh, the loved ones that she designated, uh, uh wouldn't, uh, challenge her instructions no, any more no, than no, the rest of us not. would. <laughs> No, absolutely. Absolutely not. Well, let us turn now to uh, the loss that, uh, you know, has had the world riveted. Uh, John Wright, I mean, we've all been watching this, and I I have to say two things surprised me is the uh, level of interest in a lot of, frankly, very arcane royal traditions that 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 we seem to be glued to like have been hour after hour but also the genuine outpouring for this woman uh who really uh you know was above us all well the the monarchy may be anachronistic it may be old and fashioned in a way that's ancient but queen elizabeth you know from the second world war on was involved in so many lives um, and and stood the test of time. Uh, there's rarely a fault that could be leveled against her. And as the Archbishop of Canterbury said today during the service, I mean, she was 21 years of age when she gave a solemn promise to undertake that level of public service and that there are few people who are able to keep that promise. And I just, I have a 21-year-old daughter, and I cannot imagine for a moment, although I think she would grow into the task, how <laughs> daunting that would have been, um, you know, for for a young woman to look forward and then to go through all of them. And just think of all the things we've been through since she's ascended the throne, and to keep that steady hand as the constitutional monarch, and to do it as well as she did. So I... I, I I think that there are older people who will remember her, and maybe even personally, and the younger people who are attached to her identity because they've seen it so much. But when you strip away the rank and the order of the monarchy, she was a human being who performed her duties with impeccable order. She certainly did. And I think, uh, you know, that brought a huge amount of respect regardless of what you think of the crown, but there was also affection. And, you know, there are some things that you rarely hear discussed about the queen, that when she became queen and embarked on this really quite uh, pivotal, if ceremonial role, there weren't a lot of other women around doing it. I mean, she was really on her own. It was before women prime ministers and and, uh, many women leaders. It's absolutely true. And um, the size and scope and the importance of the monarchy at that time, especially in a country like Canada, which the dominion of Canada, the presence of uh, royalty as an institution here. And now you take that from the point of view of London, a 21-year-old young woman in London looking out at Canada, Australia, the it was still called the British Empire at that time. So it was a big, big role to fill. And as you say, there were no other uh, women uh, in that role. Fifteen prime ministers, phenomenal change. And she was like a constant. And I think a lot of the mourning, I think a lot of the outpouring of affection, people are almost mourning their own, you know, rites of passage and the, the parts of their own life because most of the people have not known any other uh, monarch. So it's like you're reflecting You're reflecting on her reign is to reflect on your own life in some ways because she was the, the constant. Uh, yeah. And uh, Peter, do you think that uh, the Zoomer generation has a special affinity for her or for the institution? 
Well, definitely for her because, uh, you know, every time uh, we check the traffic results on our postings on the Queen, they do they perform better than almost anything else on our website. So um, there's a tremendous fascination with her still, and uh, you know, a respect from from people of the you know of our demographic. Whether that respect translates to King Charles is another question, though. And uh, I know people are sort of. Uh, keeping their powder dry until the um, until the funeral's over. But uh, I certainly don't think there will be the same level of affection uh, among our readers for King Charles and uh, and especially Queen or Queen Consort Camilla. And um, I, I, I think uh, I think it's going to be reflected in the in, in the, uh, you know, the the level of coverage of the king and you know, what, what the, you know, the declining influence of the institution. You know, uh, I wonder about that because I could see the tone changing towards Charles and, and lots of talk about Camilla kind of morphing from the evil other woman <laughs> to the benefactress of many charities. And she gave this interview about the queen and taking the queen to her charities. So I don't know. And, and to me, I mean, part of the point of all this pomp and circumstance is, is it to solidify the institution, right. John. Well, part of it may be, but <clears throat> there are two things that we really have to remember. Number one is that the monarchy as part of our constitution is going nowhere. I mean, we can have all this talk about republicanism and things like that, but just, I mean, this is not a graduate seminar. Um, uh, Mr. Trudeau's father, in fact, with the premiers at the time of the liberation of the Constitution, ensured that in order to change this circumstance, you would have to have the majorities of the Senate, the Parliament, and all of the houses, uh, the legislatures across the country. So good luck with that. I, you know, it's, it, that, that is after you've had a debate about whether you want to look like the United States or Germany and France, and whether you even want to have a referendum, which is a campaign in itself. So I, I, I think the, the, the appetite for some kind of change is, is remarkably low. But I, I think the other part of this, is that there's been a period of time now where we've gone through a an important stage. We've had 10 days, not one or two days with a quick funeral, but 10 days to reflect on it so that when we move to the next stage, it does seem like it's in the past. Like it, it truly, by the march of time over the last 10 days, seems like that. I, I can't imagine a weekend from now, <clears throat> the British tabloids not going after what's gone on in the royal family or anything else. And there may be a public dissension in terms of Charles at some point. But as I said, I it's not ours to change. If anything, public opinion will change things perhaps in the um, in the royal family. But my goodness, that would set a precedent in and of itself. And so, I, you know, after thousands of years of the monarchy, I can't see that happening. Um when I look at all of this, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is like, wow, what a life she had. She did. And you mentioned Zoomer, the context of Zoomers, and she embodied in some ways uh, a, a, what is a political philosoph philosophical challenge, although she was famous for never taking a position. But it's the age old argument. What do you preserve? What do you change? How do you change Yet with an aura of stability, how do you evolve without throwing everything away? What do you keep? What do you morph into? And she, her reign, and she herself, I mean, consider that at a very young age, she had to, uh, or did, forbid her younger sister from getting married to somebody who had been divorced. Scandal, scandal. He had been, Peter Townsend, been divorced. You can't have, that was the biggest deal going. And look what she lived to see and navigate and steer her way through. And so in some ways, she has embodied this kind of evolution, stability with change, stability with change. You keep certain traditions, yet you open yourself up to change. And that's a problem, not a problem, but it's an issue for all of us as we are reinventing, you know, what does it mean to age? Well, some scary new things, but also hanging on to some, some older things. And I think that's one of the reasons people have respected her so much is she was able to navigate 
phenomenal change if you look at before and after and yet yet stay constant and kind of like a a, the north star you know that you can navigate from and 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 speaking of what what does it mean to age i mean she was working two days before she died at a very ripe old age she went on for almost 30 years past the traditional age of retirement we've been how many times on the show that age 65 the boomers are retiring she she went on for 25 years solid after the traditional age of retirement and then maybe starts to slow down and let's not forget philip who took a time out at 89 because he couldn't get around after an operation kept going till 97 so what does that all mean? They're the ultimate Zoomers. Well, that's true. Though you have to, you <laughs> have to uh, remember uh, they they did have a lot of help. They had a support team. <laughs> they had a lot of help, a lot, a lot of very good help. But they also had unlimited funds, and it would have been very easy to sit back and scale it way back. And uh, she didn't. And leave it in the hands of uh, some yeah. of those controversial uh, children. Uh, so. John, you seem to be uh, pretty convinced that this will not lead to much of a a reappraisal. You know, I always hear people talking about how difficult it would be to change. I I don't think it's on anybody's priority list, but, you know, sometimes I wonder if that's perhaps just conventional wisdom, that maybe it wouldn't be that hard. Oh, no, I, I think it would be incredibly hard. I mean, I don't see a political party federally who wants to take this to the polls or i mean we're talking now practical politics uh, i can't see the liberals wanting to do it or the conservatives or the ndp no one would do this uh, i i i can't see um having a campaign over this let alone a discussion or a royal commission on what kind of new structure we're going to have remember that those countries that have uh, seceded from the Commonwealth in a way. Uh, they may still be part of the Commonwealth, but they, they have done away with the constitutional monarchy. They have a very different history than ours. They were, if you, if you think of our indigenous people who suffered under the crown, it wasn't the vast majority in the country. You go to the Caribbean nations, and there you have the vast majority who, in fact, were put under the rule of the colonies and have a very deep-seated difference of opinion about what the role of the monarchy is in their life and how they want to be governed. That just is not the same motivation that exists here whatsoever. With what's gone on in the United States in the last decade, I again, I think that politically that would be the campaign choice where you would say, look, you, you want to keep what you have or do you want to be like the people next door? And th- that would be, um, I think, a formidable campaign to keep people on side. And uh, David, do you also see the same? No appetite? I don't think there's any appetite at all to abolish it. And Charles has been on record as saying he wants to kind of strip it down a bit and streamline it, maybe get rid of some of the fringe people and maybe tighten up on the on the money side so that, again, if you look at William and Kate, who are the model of what's coming, much more accessible, much more down-to-earth in, in style. I'm not talking about what's behind the scenes, but I think that they're going to learn from, let's not forget that they are the best observers of what Elizabeth accomplished. They are going to learn from her example, and I don't think you're going to see um, uh, a swerving from the model she created of evolution. Peter, uh, the magazine has a special edition coming out. Yep. Um, Look for it in mid-October on newsstands. We'll take a look at the Queen's life, um, you know, her funeral, pictures of her funeral, and also some think pieces on on the future of the monarchy in Canada and the succession. So it would be very interesting collector's item, too, with all these great old Vintage pictures and and uh, you know, uh, you know opinions on on the market. And it, it'll be a great piece. So look for it on newsstands in October. I, I can hardly wait. And uh, this afternoon at three twenty-five sharp, uh, along with Marissa Lennox, I will be hosting a, a look back at the events of today. I know not everybody. 
got up at <laughs> six in the morning to watch it. So we have the highlight reel from the BBC and uh, we will be fronting that. And so please tune in on our sister station, Vision TV. And for now, thank you so much, John Wright, Peter Mugridge and David Kravitz. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Libby. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. We are taking a break. And when we come back, uh, have you been out to eat lately? There's a report, a difficult report on what is happening with the restaurant industry that is so important here and that is struggling to recover from the pandemic. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you been out to eat lately? I certainly have, making up for lost time during the pandemic. But even though a majority of us are now comfortable eating inside, the restaurant industry is having a bleak and bumpy recovery. Restaurants Canada predicts a return to pre-pandemic levels of sales this year, but the numbers are still 11% below 2019 numbers. And 85%, that's most independent full-service restaurant, took on new debt because of COVID-19. And in the meantime, you have a huge labor shortage, which means that some restaurants can't even operate a full schedule. And uh, you have rising food costs due to ex- in- inflation. I mean, all of us experience that at the grocery store. Think of how that is hurting restaurants, uh, the highest relative food prices since the 80s. And all of that make it very hard. They're, they're, those debts that they took on, the loans that the government made available to a lot of restaurants, well, they're coming due now, and this is all making it very difficult for a lot of them to pay those loans back. Uh, what do you think, and uh, uh, what are you doing in terms of eating out? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740-4740. And now let's go to James Rylett, Vice President of Central Canada at Restaurants Canada and Court des Hotels of the Neighborhood Group of company, Companies, which operates four restaurants in Guelph and one in Kitchener. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us on. Sorry, I just needed a little... Uh, off there. Um, so let's begin with you, James. Uh, what did you find most disturbing uh, in this survey? Well, I think what we found was most disturbing was what uh, we, we knew anecdotally from our members, but half, uh, 30% continue to lose money and uh, almost half are, are just barely breaking even. So, um, you know, the majority of the, almost the majority of restaurants still aren't making any money. That's, they're not able to pay their debt down and, uh, they're still in, in difficult times, even though, uh, um, the F- direct effects of the pandemic have, uh, passed. Uh, Court, uh, what are you finding in your restaurants? Are people back? Um, no, not quite, believe it or not. And what's the, the funny part is that we're, <clears throat> You know, we're seeing sales comparable to 2019, uh, summer, summer up, summer down. Uh, but that's all due to increased menu prices. Uh, the big piece is that our guest counts are still down and up to 20, 25% down. So we're seeing the sales, but not the guest counts. And the guest counts is what's the most concerning. And uh, why are the sales up? Because inflation is up and prices are higher or what? That's exactly it. So we're, you know, we've increased menu prices anywhere from, you know, five to twenty percent on some items, just because of the increased costs that we're seeing uh, coming through uh, every every day. It's it's something different, and and now it's almost we're lucky to even get a product in the door, no matter what we're paying for it. Um, so we're not just dealing with inflationary pricing, but it's also labor shortages throughout the industry, and we're noticing that, you know, in every industry. Um, so <clears throat> trucks aren't showing up on time. Uh, products aren't uh, being picked in the fields, so they're not arriving. And 
So we've, uh, yeah, we're in a really, really tough spot right now because, you know, the, just the costs everywhere we look, and that's just not the, the food costs. It's not just the labor costs, but it's even the plumbing costs and, um, you know, supplies uh, from every which way we're seeing increases. What have your customers been telling you about the price increases? Do they understand and they're willing or, or uh, are they complaining? Um, it's a bit of a mix. And so I think at the beginning, when we started coming out of this, but, you know, kind of in the spring, I think everybody was very uh, just ecstatic to be out dining again. And now you're starting to see, we're starting to see some more uh, comments on on pricing. And where people were coming out for dinner, we didn't notice our dining times have shortened as well. So where people are coming out having a, you know, a couple drinks and an appetizer, main course, maybe dessert. Now we're seeing it's, you know, maybe an appetizer, but not dessert, or it's just a main course, or maybe it's just an appetizer and, and uh, taking off. So, so it's been a really, you know, it's a really interesting thing to, to study in each of the restaurants. People were very accepting at the beginning, and then now they're, uh, we're getting a few more complaints about, uh, about costs. Well, everybody, I guess, is squeezed by this inflation. Uh, James Roilette. Would you say that the inflation is a worse problem or the labor shortage? Well, that's a pick really. But I guess uh, from what we've seen is uh, labor is the biggest problem right now. Uh, it's hard to... Uh it's hard to charge things at any price if it can't be open. So what we're seeing right now is about the industry's operating at about 80% with uh, people having to close uh, either earlier or close one a day a week or um, or just have sections of the restaurant closed. So um, we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing increase in uh, complaints from customers. Uh, if you do a review of or if you do an overview of review sites, uh, seeing a 23% increase in um, complaints about uh, service so that's directly related to uh, um, to employees so um, inflation is definitely a very close second but I think uh, I think uh, employers <laughs> a lack of employment is the uh, is the bigger one you know very interesting last week I covered the launch of the Michelin guide in Toronto and and the restaurants that were awarded either stars or other types of recognition and one of the restaurateurs that I interviewed the interesting thing I said well what do you hope it will do for your business and he said I hope that this will attract great staff to the business. He wasn't even talking about numbers or clients or anything like that. Court, what do you make of that? No, I think that's a, you know our biggest asset in the in the restaurant industry is the people that work in it, and and that is also our greatest liability. And now more so, it's just trying to get people to come back into the industry. You know, all of our staff were. You know, through the restaurants, we were open and we were shut down and we were open again and shut down. And so people lost a consistent revenue stream. And so they had to go find work other places and you can't blame them for doing that. And so now trying to get everybody back into the industry, hoping that we don't roll into any other lockdowns coming into, you know, the, the fall winter, it's still weighing on a lot of the staff. So, you know, you can see people are very timid to get, get back in the industry. People miss the industry. Um, but once again, I don't think we're, we're treated very fairly, uh, throughout the pandemic. And even the subsidies weren't enough to help people pay for their rent and, you know, their, you know, grocery bills or daycare or whatever, whatever some of the uh, costs they would have to look after on a daily basis. So, you know, not only are we, you know, seeing, uh, you know, the labor shortage, but because manufacturing has been, been booming industry, uh, those sectors are, hiring more people and, and, and paying, you know, good wages. And so that's, uh, even if our wages are comparable, getting people back into the door, uh, you can see that they're, they're still very, uh, very hesitant. They're almost suffering from PTSD from what they've experienced over the past uh, two and a half years. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about paying people in the restaurant industry better. And, and there's one thing I want to 
uh, bring up because it's another thing, you know, Court, you were saying that at the beginning, people were very accepting of paying more and now are starting to complain. And the, the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of talk about paying people better and about tipping. And there's been a, a very large tipping inflation, uh, not just for restaurant workers, but for people that we never tipped before, you know, somebody handing you something at a takeout. And I'm wondering if there's a bit of backlash, because even for takeout now, if you go and you pay for something with a card, I mean, if anything less than 20% seems to denote that you're not happy. Uh, and I wonder if there's a backlash, Court. Yeah, there, there could very well be. I think we've, you know, I, I haven't really experienced that much um, in our industry. I think if you talk to our servers and, and everybody else, I think they, they're still, you know, making the same, if not less than they were prior to the pandemic. So I think you saw that at the beginning. People are happy to get out. They felt sorry for people in the industry and were, were being a little, you know, uh, a little more generous. Uh, but I don't think we're, we're seeing that quite uh, at this point now. But I do agree you you tip on everything now. You know, there's a lot of services out there that are that are taking gratuities that we didn't see in the past, and so I think that's also people just trying to help make up for all the lost income that they've they've had, and people are feeling the pinch from it because, you know, from the consumer side, gas prices are up, grocery prices are up, going out and eating is up, um, and wages um, have really not gone up to to match inflation, and I think that's one of the other pieces that all industries, especially the restaurant industry, are struggling with is to keeping up with um, inflationary pricing with comparable wages uh, just because, you know, their rents are going up if, if they've had to move or if they're, you know, unless they're fortunate enough to be in a place for a, for a long period of time or their rents, you know, only even a one, you know, one to two percent increase per year. So, you know, every, everybody's feeling it um, and we're just trying to figure out what, the, what that solution is. And James, what is the solution? Um, well, there's lots of solutions out there. I, I think it'll. It all depends on the customers. There's there's different models uh, of, of of compensating staff, and and some have talked about going to a non tipping model. Some have talked about uh, you know just increasing uh, uh, prices uh, or sorry uh, wages. But you know, I've always said. Um, operators will put out models and, and it'll be up to the, uh, um, the staff and the, uh, and the customers to decide which model they like best. So I think in the end, uh, I know it sounds like a, a cheap out, but it, the market always figures it out. Well, uh, but beyond that, what's, what's the solution for the industry and, and how do restaurateurs deal with the debt they have to pay back? Well, that's the big question. I, I think without we've we've said right from the start of the pandemic that this is not a short term thing. It's uh, in our industry, especially we're hit first, we're hit hardest, and we really need the government to continue to support our industry as we try and get through this. And and if there's ways of helping us pay pay down some of that debt so that a viable business uh, that is is working. Uh, Everything else being equal, and it just has to has to uh, um, pay down this debt. There's ways to help them. That that would be the best way to to go about it because there's too many other balls in the air right now, and uh, it, it's very hard to uh, juggle them all. Okay, and uh, Court, what would you like to leave us with? I think you know there's there's always been a lot of challenges in the restaurant industry, and definitely for restaurant tours, we need to you know rethink how we're doing. You know we're you know, how we're looking at our employees a little bit differently. And where we've seen success is that we, we pay for health benefits. We've been doing it for, for a long time, try to make it a more of a, you know, this is a long-term um, industry, not just a short-term while you're paying to you know, yourself to get through, you know, college, university, and trying to, trying to do more things to keep people engaged in the business uh, for long-term where you can see you can, you know, you can raise a family and, um, and have all the perks that you would what people would say is a typical, you know, nine to five job where those uh, those things are quite standard. Okay. Thank you so much, Court Desotel and James Rylett. We appreciate your insight. Thanks, Thanks for having us on.
Okay, uh, we are taking another break. And when we come back, you know, we've been talking a lot about how much less attractive the job of city councillor has become. But we're going to talk to two candidates who would really like to have those jobs. And uh, I want to find out why and also what they plan to do if they are elected when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, lately, we have heard a lot about how much less attractive the job of city councillor has become and how many fewer candidates there are than during the last election. Well, today, I am delighted to be joined by two people who really want the job and are vying for it, and neither are total newbies. Lawyer Rocco Atampong ran in the last election, though he withdrew before the vote. And John Burnside was defeated in Leedside when the number of councillors was cut by Doug Ford. And what do you think? And do you have questions for a couple of your potential city councillors? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Rocco Achimpong, who is a candidate for Toronto City Councillor in Spadina, North York, and John Burnside, who is running in Ward 16, Don Valley East. Thanks and welcome to both of you. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. John, uh, let me start with you. Uh, you were a councillor. You were defeated in the last election when uh, rather than having two city councillors in Leaside, we're down to one. Jay Robinson won. What made you want to get back in there? Well, I never wanted to leave. Uh, so, so let's start with that. That choice was made by somebody else, right? Um, I, you know what? I was there for four years. Uh, I had a very diverse ward. It was like a microcosm of the city, and I loved it. I loved uh, trying to help people, hopefully solving a lot of issues and moving the city forward. And I'd like that opportunity uh, to serve the community again, which coincidentally, Don Valley East is actually where I live. My ward, uh, as you mentioned, was Leaside, but it actually also included Flemington Park and Winford, and it got split in two. And uh, uh, did you find, I mean, you were doing other things for the last four years. Did you find that, you know, not the same or um, not satisfying? Well, I was actually hired back by the city, which is very unusual. And uh, it was very satisfying and I, and I quite enjoyed it. But I love being the counselor. And I loved, uh, you know, serving the community and, and um, trying to help people solve the myriad of issues that they had. And I'd like that opportunity again. What were you doing, if I may ask? So I was actually, you know, as you know, Libby, I was a former police officer. Uh, yeah. I had some experience uh, half of that time of my 10 years was in traffic. So they launched the traffic agent program. And so I was hired back by the transportation department to help launch that program. And uh, then I was moved over to the uh, deputy city manager's office. And I'm currently on an unpaid leave of absence. Okay. Rocco Atchampong, so... Uh, Last time around, you challenged the law that cut the number of city councillors and you were running and you withdrew before the vote. Uh, so what made you want to get back in? You're a lawyer. Well, one, it's, uh, I've had about four years to prepare to do this. And, it, you know, I don't I don't approach um, being a candidate without some thought, being a family man, having a wife, having, you know, children to care for. And, and those considerations, um, obviously are uh, at the fore of mind when one is deciding to, uh, put your name forward. Um, but I've always wanted to be in public service. I've always had an ethos of public service. I've, so far as my track record, uh, uh, my track record speaks to always being involved in public issues, even as a student, as a, as a student president at the university. Of Toronto, or even running for class president in grade school, I've always wanted to be there at the fore of a public discussion and uh, just uh, contribute as best as I can. The last thing I saw of you on social media mm -hmm. was a picture of you in front of overflowing garbage in your ward. And I have to say, uh, and we've had this conversation many times here. 
basic city services are not working. So what would you do to get the garbage collected? It's disgusting. Uh, I don't think there's another way to uh, one can describe it as. It, it is absolutely disgusting. And I've said I want the, sa- uh, the, the streets uh, safe and clean. And on that note, I mean, uh, John is from Traffic Services and they've been dealing with a very tragic circumstance in that unit. Uh, I want to extend my condolences to the Toronto Police Services and to you, John, personally, because that came from your unit. Um, but safe streets, uh, you know, let me stick to the uncleanliness issue. Um, Spadano Fort York is where everybody comes. Yeah. Tourists. Is Down the street from here. Right. Every- I, we're, we were in Spadina Fort, Fort York. York. Where everybody comes to play. And it is disgusting not having to, not having um, uh, litter disposals at frequent intervals. You have to, you have to walk two city blocks just to find another garbage and everybody is loading it up. Um, I just think uh, we can be a cleaner city. We can have litter disposals at more frequent intervals. We can have cigarette uh, disposal places at more frequent uh, intervals. Spadano Fort York is where all the uh, people come to smoke. Uh, not, yeah, because we have so many <laughs> marijuana shops, right? So you're smoking on the street, you're throwing it out on the floor, you're smoking cigarettes, you're throwing it out the, on the floor. There is our enter- entertainment district, they're clubbing, and you're throwing it out on the floor. And my place is disgusting. That's where my family lives. It, it, it's interesting. You know, we used to be a clean city, and I know this was an issue that my brother Moses took up, and it's been years and you're right it is disgusting and it's not just in spadina fort york where people come to play it is all over the city where uh it's things basic basic things are not being done you know washrooms aren't open public washrooms excuse me water fountains aren't working john i mean how do you make them work well, I, I don't disagree with uh, what you're saying, Libby. And there's no question more attention needs to be paid for those in, in terms of those issues. However, uh, I think as a city, we need to show more pride in our city. Garbage doesn't get on the ground because, you know, for no reason at all. It's because people are throwing things, their cigarette butts and, and pop cans or whatever the case may be. So as a city, we need to show more pride. Uh, but I think when you're talking about all city services, as a city, we also need to focus on the fundamentals, right? There's going to be a huge budget for uh, shortfall, um, mostly because of the low ridership on the TTC. And so we're not getting those funds. So we really have to prioritize what's important. What are the core services that we're supposed to offer? You know, whether it's policing, whether it's water, whether it's transportation, you know, you name it, well, that, that will be figured out and, and stick to those. And I think some of the frills, whatever they may be, and council will decide these things, but we can't be everything to everyone. And I think that's the key. And one last thing I was just going to say, other levels of government need to step up. When we're talking affordable housing, the province needs, and TCH, they need to step up and get in the game because most people, whether they're new to Canada or whatever Toronto the case Toronto Community is, Housing, by the way. No acronyms. To, right. Sorry. Sorry <laughs> about that. Everyone seems to come to Toronto. We provide the services, but this is a provincial or national. These are provincial and national issues, and we need more help. Can I piggyback on what he just said? Sure. Um, you said there's a budget shortfall. I think uh, the warning has been roughly about $804 million. I just raised $2 billion with my congestion fee proposal. I, uh, you may have uh, read yes, about it in the yes. past week. We, you haven't raised it you've proposed right right so <laughs> and what would that be that would be if you want to drive into the city you've got to pay if you're coming into they all come to Spadina Fort York and John is right they're coming to Toronto but when you're coming to Toronto as a as a visitor as a tourist you usually come into the Toronto skyline right you're coming to uh, the aquarium you're coming to see the CN Tower you're coming to a Blue Jays game you're coming to a Raptors game whatever the case may be you're usually here you're coming to patronize a restaurant in, uh, on King West Queen West Ossington whatever the case may be you're coming here and they're clogging our streets it is that bad and so I, I took inspiration from the city of London um, when I was obviously walking through the city of London, just loving the fact that it was so clean, it was pedestrian friendly. Let's charge a congestion zone for people that don't live or work in the ward. You would be excluded, Libby, because <laughs> you work in the ward, right? You would be excluded. But that raises $2 billion. Where do I, I, where do I get that uh, number from? The city of London's congestion zone in 2021 brought in 1.2 billion pounds. I'm conceiving of a larger zone 
which would eclipse, it, it could possibly exceed uh, $2 billion, but that's a lot of money that solves our, tra- that solves the budget shortfall and leaves us with a lot of money to do uh, a lot of green space initiatives and climate change initiatives. Well, it's, you know, part of the reason for the congestion is that uh, I know I've had conversations with the mayor about coordinating construction. It, it looks like that is yet another thing that we have given up on. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It is just ridiculous all the things that are going on at once right and i guess this is the the moment i say i'm glad i'm glad i wasn't the counselor for the last four years um (laughs) because it does seem to be more of an issue and i don't know if the pandemic has has played into that uh i know that there when i was the counselor the city uh toronto water toronto roads they were working together and it seemed to be getting better uh lately that uh doesn't seem to be the case but i just want to go back to the road uh the congestion fee you know mayor and council and i was on council at the time we uh, he took a bold step which was tolling the dvp and the gardener my concern with the congestion fee and we don't need to get too deep into it is how does that affect tourism right um, but in terms of the gardener and the dvp most people are coming from outside of the city and we're one of the only municipalities that actually has to pay our own way for that highway that's all that expense is borne by toronto all other municipalities it's paid for by the province their highways so it was a bold step and I, and I applaud his leadership on that. And unfortunately, the provincial government, um, you know, kiboshed that idea. Well, and you know what? If Kathleen Wynne didn't like it, you can be sure that Doug Ford will hate it. So I, I would guess that that's a non-starter. There's something else I want to bring up that I bring up often. And, and I say it with a caveat because I expect a lot of people to be unhappy with what I'm saying, and and instead, to the extent that I get feedback, people agree with me, and that that is that uh, you know uh, the pandemic was uneven. There were people who did well, people who did less well. One of the uh, groups of people that did well are public servants working from home, collecting full pay, and I say uh, they. The, the evidence would be that that work did not get done because we would not be seeing what we see on the streets if it did. There are strong mayor powers where he has more power in terms of a workforce. But what's your view of that, Rocco, and what would you try to do about it? Well, and so far as the strong mayor powers, uh, as you mentioned before we began. Uh, no, I want to talk about the workforce. Oh, the workforce. Well, uh, look, we got to get them out of your homes. Uh, uh, as a lawyer myself, I've been, uh, we're not back in the courts. Uh, we're all still pretty much appearing in court from home. It affects your approach to work. Um, I think uh, differentiating where you are comfortable where you are uh, at home, where you're supposedly supposedly psychologically at peace away from work um, and, and where you actually work and are productive, it, we have to return back to the office. Uh, staying at home is not going to be helpful. There are a lot of distractions. Uh, once the Zoom uh, meeting is done or you darken your screen, God knows what you're doing. Right? And that's why productivity has suffered. And that's why, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon and uh, uh, a number of this and Elon Musk and a number of the CEOs of these Fortune Fives are saying, you cannot stay home, come to work. And we need people to come back to work. And it's affecting the public service. Yeah. And, you know, so I was actually on the inside of the public service, which is a, a very unique experience. And um, first of all, I, I want to push back a little bit because garbage still get did get picked up. Uh, water still was clean. We had all, we had, there were a lot of services that were still provided. Parks were still, the grass was cut, whatever the case might be. Um, in terms of uh, staff not uh, being as productive, I would argue that staff who were productive before were still productive. Staff <laughs> who were not productive before. But how come so much didn't get done then? Well, I don't know. The... I don't know what data you're actually referring to. Libby. I, I'm I'm referring to the garbage on the streets. I'm I referring to to bathrooms not being open, water fountains not working, all those little things. And I have to tell you that I usually try to stay away from uh, any kind of 
dealing with like a three one one. Last week there was this uh, this uh, a candidate wants to get a speed hump uh, fixed, and the automated three one one gave him an exact date and time four years from now. Those things are not getting done. When I've called uh, certain departments that were supposed to be working from home or wherever, black hole. So that's, it's, it's not data, but it's uh, certainly my and other people I know experience. And we have a couple of minutes left. So go ahead. Okay. So what I would say, what I would uh, say to that is, well, first of all, I think a more serious problem, which was identified by the chief of police is calling 911 and being on hold on a Saturday night for 19 minutes. Absolutely. Okay. So that's where I would start. Uh, in terms of uh, other issues, of course, the pandemic did. So no one that was cleaning the streets was working from home. You know, whether, you know, there were obvious issues with people getting COVID and whatever the case might be. So that's, that's another issue. Uh, strangely, the city's having a hard time filling positions. So they are short-staffed, as is the call center at 911. So I think it's a bit of a deeper issue. I'm not saying there aren't productivity issues. I'm just not sure that the working from home is actually um, the, main, the main cause. Let me jump in here for a second. Uh, and so far as being under-resourced and understaffed, in, and the Toronto Police Service is perhaps the one I'm most concerned with. Uh, you don't have enough officers, in my view. Uh, we have roughly about 200 officers for about every, 100 officers for every 200,000 residents in Toronto and that is madness and that's a recipe for disaster I think we should have an immediate injection of uh, injection of roughly about two, uh, three to five hundred new officers uh, half of whom may be uh, mental health support workers that are seconded with uh, the various units responding to home calls and and the sort domestics are usually the calls that usually come in so we need to really fix our city our city is somewhat broken the pandemic has exacerbated that we need to get back on making sure we have a well-heeled well-run machine serving the residents and making sure that the ladies dimer is not not on hold on 311 when she makes a phone call. I'm not calling 311. Well, Life is too short. Hopefully you'll be her counselor and she'll be calling you. And I well, will be there to serve. And I will be there to serve. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at the clock. We have a, a little less than a minute left. Uh, and so interesting that you were pushing back on me, but I still think that there is a very much a, in terms of a, it's not even have and have not wouldn't be the right uh, designation, but there is definitely a divide. And I believe that it is growing. Well, and I don't dispute that there needs to be a refocus back to, you know, city services, cleanliness, pride, all those things. I think it's a citywide refocus and, and uh, this budget process will probably bring things into a, a clearer lens. Okay, Rocco, 10 seconds, no more. Uh, we need to start uh, restoring some faith into our institutions. I think we're being rather disrespectful. Um, and I think uh, we need to have some faith and love for our city and just fix it as soon as possible. Okay. Thank you so much, Rocco Atchampong, candidate for uh, for Spadina North Fort York, Spadina Fort York, and John Burnside, candidate for Don Valley East. That was a really good conversation. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.